0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the late 80s and 90s band Chapter House, because I recently spoke to their guitarist, songwriter, the one and only Stephen Patman, to find out more about life, love and poetry. And also to say that Cherry Red Records has... Is, this is May 2023, released a 6-CD box set of the band with all the albums, singles, b-sides, remixes and demos that's available from all good record shops and probably online. So do check that out. Anyway, this is the interview with Stephen. So after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject... That was the early, early formative years, the musical awakening. Stephen, tell us everything. Tell us now.
1: Well, um, I had an older brother who was a little bit older than you, actually. And um, he was also he was in his teens in the early 70s, and um so he had all the he had a, a lot of the Bowie stuff, um, which I was being exposed to. Um and he, he unfortunately went down the bit of a prog route and got into sort of um genesis and and uh and that side of stuff which um but in the meantime a lot of that stuff soaked into my brain but i suppose you know my first awareness is of music around sort of maybe 10 i think my first seven inch i ever bought at 10 years old was september by earth wind and fire so oddly enough disco had a Sunk into my head at some point in my life, which oh my yes. Uh, but I suppose the the most seminal, probably the the sort of thing that really triggered everything off in the teens, was probably the Mary Chain, come with with um, um upside down and never understand. Um, right. There, I mean, I was already into a, a, quite a lot of indie bands at the time then, but but that that. Just that raw noise was a real was a real springboard in my head of of, of, um it kind of tied in with all the coolness i i knew you know the velvet underground mixed with with noise and feedback and alongside sonic youth who were doing these amazing kind of guitar soundscapes around then as well in this the, the sort of the three um bad moon rising evil and sister with yes. Those three albums were a massive influence on me in the way that they were. They were actually initially quite hard to get into, but once you're into it, it was just like really eye-opening.
0: Yes, um, I know. So
1: I suppose, but I mean, you know, before that, actually, I was. I think, you know, it's hard to define a point where you actually did it did define you, but I mean, I was really into. I got into the two-tone thing when I was probably about eleven, twelve, um, bought ghost town. I remember buying seven inch of ghost town and getting into madness and the two-tones thing was quite big, you know, buying the old the the the, the thin ties and the yes. checker, checker <laughs> the, the man tipping his toolby. Um so um, but I suppose when I really took my music seriously was probably, you know, a bit later on when I was more like 14, 15, 16, which is when I was got into that, yes. that the indie stuff, which was basically, yeah, the, I think probably if I had to be honest, the, the impact of hearing the Mary Chain for the first time was just a bit of a real kick in the head.
0: Um, <laughs> Yes, it and was. I
1: recently listened to that record again of a couple of weeks ago and realized how I've, I've put it the back of my mind for years really because so I wasn't that keen on after that point, after my psycho candy, when it kind of went sort of rockabilly with a drum machine. Um, I, I, I wasn't so keen on that. Um, but that initial, those initial EP, the new the singles and in the, in the first album, which was just this sort of wash of feedback was i found exhilarating
0: yes that was quite a leap because it was quite i couldn't help but sort of slightly smile when you mentioned your older brother because i too had an older brother who was seven years older who i i probably worshipped a bit when i was younger and he was into prog rock and um you know and i wanted to be as cool as him so i i too you know got into the world of yes genesis Wishbone ash the solo work of rick wakeman barclay james harvest focus hocus pocus (laughs) you know with with Pete Frampton and then he had sort of Black Sabbath and Deep Purple thrown in as well but there was not there was not a 7 inch single in his record collection he would also buy those plastic sleeves to go on the outside of the album to yeah. and forbid me to go into his room and play his records so obviously you'd sneak in and play them religiously and and then quickly put them away so you became quite good at sort of not leaving fingerprints anywhere He became an accountant, you could imagine, couldn't you?
1: Right, yes. (laughs) I do remember my brother bought this light. It was a kind of stained glass box. It was a pretty cheap plastic fake stained glass box with light bulbs in it that flashed in time to the music that had a little mic in them, and he'd put that in his room and listen to his prog albums in the dark with this thing flashing away to the music. Uh, (laughs) Um, uh, as, as a sort of six-year-old that's quite um uh, yes really strange thing to be you know,
0: the roger see. dean covers and then tubular bells thrown in it all seemed you know and then it was like sunday evening there was that kind of the top 40 i think and then there was top of the pops obviously on a thursday which was a, a kind of religious experience so you know there was the de- charts which could be really random from things like telly savalas to disco to you know a bit of status quo it was just a very weird mix and it was
1: very strange I remember tuning in on Sunday evenings for the charts and recording the tracks off of the radio um yes on a Sunday night with this dread that I hadn't done my homework for, for Monday morning I was quite hearing that chart program with being scared I hadn't finished my homework
0: I know. We, we, even at a young age, we had parked those deadlines to, to Sunday late after saying, I'll do it on Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. Saturday, no, I'm not doing it. Sunday morning. Sunday, yeah. And it was like, oh my God, I still haven't done the geography homework. And then we got into Annie Nightingale later. So that was always exciting, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Her, her, her yes. request show. So, Indeed, 80, yeah. so 83, massive year. The Smiths formed, don't they? So indie pop for me was a massive thing. Did, did that kind of route sort of you know you were a young sensitive young person rocking out did did the indie pop indie pop world of um sensitive singer songwriters appeal to you
1: yeah i mean obviously that around that point when well 83 i would have been about 40, 15, 14 15, and that was when i was just starting so watching the tube and picking up on stuff there so that's when i was getting into the smiths and Echo and the bunny men um, I remember the cramps playing the tube, which was a pretty seminal moment when they had a date with Elvis around that time. Um, and um, Octo Twins um, and the Mary Chain was sort of simultaneous to that. Um, so there was a bit of a scene. I mean, around as we got a little older, we'd start hanging out in Reading. So I grew up in a sort of town about four or five miles outside Reading. And there was a sort of um a, a little market alleyway called smelly alley um well, and at the end of it was some benches where all the kind of alternos hung out so this would have been in the mid 80s and and um and at that point if you were alternative it basically encompassed everything so it was it was punk skins goths indie kids i mean indie kind of wasn't even a thing then it was like the long the long um, Parker brigade, and the, the, the it was India hadn't quite been defined at that point, <laughs> so, but yes. it was basically everybody. So, you know, that's where we used to meet up, and there was a an independent record shop on that alleyway where we'd buy our records.
0: Yes, and smelly, um, smelly Alley.
1: Yeah, it was actually called Union Street, but because it was this, it was this one of those very narrow gaps between buildings where all the all the butchers and and, um and greengrocers were along it it was um it was only like it was you couldn't drive a car down it It was it was that narrow
0: right what was your first gig you went to
1: um (laughs) well um i was uh it depends which way the first gig I chose to go to, or the first gig I was tricked into going to. which was is... so,
0: so the tricked into one, I think Stuart Lee, his was the Wombles, actually. So um, what right. was your...
1: <laughs> well, so technically the first gig was um, my brother um, was at Uni- Winchester University. <clears throat> um, and me and my sister went down to visit him. And then we were walking on the street and he just said, oh, there, there was this coach by the side of the road. And he said, well why don't we just get on this coach. And we looked confused. <clears throat> and it basically drove us to uh Wembley Arena to see Duran Duran for my sister's birthday. <laughs> so um so that was my first gig and I was ashamed to say that for many years but um because I didn't <laughs> choose to do it. But um and my sister was like a, a massive Duran Duran fan so she had her bedroom plastered with She's a couple of years younger than me. Her bedroom walls and ceiling plaster. This must have been plastic.
0: this must have been the height of the band's kind of popularity.
1: Yeah, this would have been yeah, like eighty two,
0: something like that. Maybe. Oh, so Rio had just come out then.
1: Yeah, was it was when they were big enough to? Oh, I've got a feeling that they it might have been around Wild Boys because I have got this strange feeling they played that there. Right. That, that was quite. That was a few albums in, wasn't it? But. Um, the first one I chose to go to was the Cured in Brighton, at uh, the uh, Brighton Centre. We yes. Me and Simon from the band actually went there, um, and uh, we were really into photography at the time, so we were taking lots of black and white photographs of moody moody shots on Brighton Beach.
0: My God, that's fantastic. Yes. That, you that would have
1: been 84, four, five. It was the Head on the Door tour, so around that time yes
0: and I think yeah I can't remember and then Hot 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 comes out in 87 doesn't it so I can't remember what comes in between those yeah but then when did you pick up a a musical instrument when did you think I might want to be in a band
1: well um it was around the same time when I was getting into that music really there'd been this acoustic scene in the house that my dad had but it was pretty much unplayable um so I didn't really learn on that and i think it was when i was 15 i was on on holiday with my parents in bournemouth or eastbourne and there was an exchange in mark in there that had a a gibson Ness paul copy by k in a uh, it was a black i've still got it actually somewhere around um in a in a lovely case with a with a with burgundy burgundy velvet inside and it was like 60 quid or something I, I bought that <clears throat> and a book of 101 Beatles songs chord book and because electric guitars are a lot easier to play than and it's yes. guitar when your fingers haven't worn in and, and at the end of your fingers are all raw but I basically just sat for the for a whole weekend as soon as I bought it with this book of chords and Till my fingers were killing me, and and look, basically taught myself to play. Um,
0: Fantastic. Which, was, which around, was the fir- which was the first song that you thought? God, that does actually sound like that. that well, song. it was
1: tricky because the the um, the the Beatles played some actually pretty tricky chords, and they often did stuff higher up the neck. But because and this was must have been transcribed by someone who wanted all the chords to be uh, open chords rather than bar chords. Right. So. They just made these very bizarre shaped chords that were like p- putting your hand in ridiculously silly positions to try and play it when you probably play it quite easily somewhere else on the on the neck. But um, um, so some of them were real like what the hell's going on here. But others I can't remember specifically. But ones that basically allowed me to play sort of E A D C F or well, G, <laughs> were the ones that sounded the most realistic, you know.
0: Excellent, yes. So when you get to 16, do you leave school, go do A-levels and go towards university land?
1: Um, I did actually, our school had a sixth form um, and I I should have left really, I think, in retrospect, but because I was studying photography and that was what I was really interested in, Simon and I didn't I could, from, from chapter as we were basically best mates then and and um uh we both got into photography and then we did photography O level and then we were going to leave um both had plans of becoming photographers and going to study photography
0: <clears>
1: then <throat> somehow um it was suggested that photography A level could be introduced to the school just for us and a couple of other guys that were wanting to do it and so it was and then so we did stay on um and took a couple of other A levels just because you had to. Yes. But it was a basically a waste of time. And um I left with just the photography A level and wasn't really in by the end of the sixth form I was basically decided we were gonna be play, making music.
0: Um I mean that's a very but, good plan. That's uh, yeah. ambitious as well. Did your parents go mm interesting?
1: Oh yeah I I didn't really like our ripped jeans and and long hair um particularly but they didn't really give us any shit about it they just kind of it was like embarrassing to the neighbors that we had bust out knees on our jeans and you know um but they 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 pretty much let us get on with it um we didn't really talk about it as such but um (laughs) and it it was just known that it was kind of they were concerned obviously that we were doing it but it was odd, actually, because after all that time, um when we first sold out the Town and Country Club, which was for us when going up to London to gigs to see all our favorite bands, that was the epitome venue like to, so for that was basically our our we'd achieved everything we'd set out to do when we sold that out and headlining it.
0: yes, that's... Um,
1: and um we invited our parents, booked out the front row of the balcony. For all our parents to, to to come that night and that was the first time any of them had seen us play i think so that was kind of a, a validation moment um of like see we weren't <laughs> we weren't dicking <laughs> around for nothing um so um but uh yeah
0: because with a lot of the bands that I've interviewed, especially the slightly early part of the 80s, most were unemployed, a lot were. That's a bit of a sweeping statement. But, you know, there was unemployment, there was Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Allowance schemes that people went on to. You know, I think Thatcher was trying to massage the unemployment figures. Did you did you sort of have to sort of get a, a part-time job and do the band, or did you have to sign on, or did you just live well, at home?
1: after sixth form, I um, did do a bunch of kind of I did, I did a bit of time through a temping agency. So I did a bit of work through in a, in a toy factory with Simon. Um, and the, we only did it for a week. We were brought in for what was like the rush before Christmas after um, we, so it would have been the summer of 87 when we left school. Um, and we were basically on these production lines in these big warehouses for Hasbro toys, making My Little Ponies and Kaplunks. And, yes and um and uh hungry hippos and stuff but um we found out that they were owned by um, that hasbro somehow owned beggars banquet and um and all and all the subs- warner brothers basically so we found out that we could order cheap records through them by being employed so we ended up staying on an extra three or four weeks just so we could buy our quota of records for cheap and they had Blanky Negro on them, so I could buy all the Mary Chain records and and uh, Corona or I think, were also corners. So the beckon and Bunnyman stuff. But um, anyway, after three or four weeks of working longer than I'd planned there, I kept saying, where's my orders coming? And then it turned out that someone had been away and I was never going to see these records. So I just walked out that morning in a, oh, in, no. in a teenage huff
0: yes Never go on. Walked, went back no but,
1: um and then i did do a, actually temp started temping at a government agency um called the intervention board for agricultural produce and then became full-time there so i was working basically as an admin assistant in this office pro- processing eu subsidies to farmers um and christian um uh, from slowdive um he was he got a job there for a while as well um so we would kind of go meet at lunchtime um and yeah so the beginnings of the band i was working in that office um when we were um touring with spaceman three um and when we uh um before we moved up to london really because andy was studying for an extra year after sixth form to get better a-level results to go to UCL. So we, uh, you, to answer your question in a long-winded way, um, and Simon and I didn't have any plans to go to university. Um, initially, we were both going to, to try and do a fine art photography course, but it, yes. turned, but it turned out that firstly, you couldn't get in with one A-level, which was why that sixth form was a waste of time. Um, and also the only fine art um, photography course in the whole country was in uh, Derby which we also didn't fancy much. Um, <laughs> and the band had kind of taken priority by then. So um, Andy was studying whilst we were, Andy Simon was working in a photography shop. Um, and then when we all moved up to London and um, when Andy first started university, basically it's, we, that was kind of when we started signing on.
0: Yes, then, um, it, always, it always feels kind um, of edgy and exciting, doesn't um, it?
1: Me and Andy was me and Simon was squatting in Kensington for first sort of year there, and then sort of sleeping around people's floors. But meanwhile, we were getting signed and started touring, and we were on the road quite a lot, so didn't really need anywhere to live.
0: No. So who were you touring with at that stage? Were you mostly the support band? Were you?
1: Yeah, we got um, our I think our second or third gig. When you heard spaceman three were coming through reading and um we said we've got to get on that bill so i asked the promoter if we could play that at night and he said well maybe but um i want you to play at a lower support an opening support slot first and we've got jazz butcher coming next month so you do that one um we did that one and then Spacemen 3 about two or three weeks later, and we kind of figured that they, they might like us, which they did. So we got chatting with them in the backstage, and Pete Kemba, um Sonic took our numbers. And then they basically asked us if we wanted to do some shows with them on their next tour. Um, and Their manager started kind of helping us out and looking after us. And then we started recording up in rugby in the studio. They were they were, work, they were used and half sleeping on their floors and stuff. Um, and then, um, so yeah, we did a few shows with them and then we got an agent. So when we were living in London, the agent was basically booking us into mainly London support slots around different uh, different venues around London.
0: Yes, blimey. And, uh, and uh, I mean, because I've done an interview, I just seem to have done three interviews with members of the Spaceman 3. Mm-hmm. i mean their, their manager one of them sounded quite bonkers
1: it yeah was like... he was the guy um he 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 was a bit of a wild boy wide boy and um bit of a chancer um he, he seems to be a music fan but...
0: was this the one that this is the one that you seem to be doing a tour based on drug dealing around the country and then he would sort of be scarpering at the same time or was this a slightly different one
1: oh i don't know i don't know about that um i mean um i know that gerald is quite local to them he's in northampton i think um and he was managing them when we first joined i think and continued to have an involvement because he funded a lot of the recordings uh initially all ours and also his basement, so he had kind of ownership of the sound recordings which he sub he'd licensed on to Dedicated right so the first few um EPs and um some of the album tracks were kind of were bought out by a dedicated but initially funded by him so um he still has a label and has reissued some of that some of the demos we've done and the sort of line mixes and and um sort of rough mixes we've done of some of the tracks um put them out um and um, Basically, unfinished songs, which wasn't exactly ideal.
0: No, and did you and did you get your sound kind of, you know, sort of sorted quite quickly? Did you sort of fix on a particular sort of vibe with the band?
1: um, I'd I'd say um, we started out with no real intention of being a band of doing anything other than having fun in a rehearsal room, really. So we. When we first started rehearsing, we were doing like Stooges covers. We um, were really into the Nuggets, um, uh, so we were doing like 60s garage covers, um, and then sort of noise out sort of stuff. And then when we first started writing our own songs, they were much more kind of droney, psychedelic fuzz, fuzz wig outs. Um, and then, as we started recording up in rugby, doing stuff that earlier, kind of noisy stuff, then some more sort of subtle nuanced sort of tracks started being written. So um before we got really before we started actually releasing records or got signed, we'd actually kind of mutated for a fair amount.:
0: Yes. Slimy. We
1: were, but that kind of that noise element to us was sort remained. And um so even though we probably went more ambient and sort of delicate sounding in seen places, we still had this core of basically kind of guitar noise, which is what we were trying to do.
0: Was that quite a tricky time, kind of uh, being in a band? Because we had the sort of the the end of the smiths in 87 then the ecstasy world came along and lots of dance music and then there was the the seattle grunge scene and and various and there was the other bands like my bloody valentine and silverfish and the faith healers i mean and then you know trying to pitch your sound at that stage did you wonder you know have to sit down and work out where you were going to fit into the musical kind of moment of, of the late 80s and early 90s
1: no, we weren't thinking about how we spit we sat with anyone else at the time. I mean, we were just doing doing what we felt we we should we should be doing, what we, what, what needed to be done. I mean, we were living in Camden for quite a lot of time and, and before getting signed, we were playing a lot of gigs at the Camden Falcon. Um and um alongside all those bands, you know, Silverfish and um
0: what about the George uh, Roby? Did you get play there? We,
1: we never did. Russ, our bass player, had a garage six, garage band that played there um, a couple of times, um, and it, uh, we used to play the Underworld. We I remember supporting Carter at the Islington Powerhouse, um, and down at uh, I think. It's really hard to remember all all of them, but but um, yeah, I mean, all all of those bands, to be honest, there wasn't you know what we were doing was really there wasn't a name for it then. Um, (laughs) I mean, you know, those some of those bands you, you mentioned were sort of like the Camden Lurch bands, they were a bit more grungy, they were kind of more UK grunge but before grunge you know because i mean ultimately we were we were really into the sub pop stuff as well like dinosaur junior had done, done a whole bunch of great albums by then yeah um, and, and um mud honey and cards and 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 um screaming trees you know that was what grunge was but before grunge actually came about you know um and um it was very uh underground um I mean, and what about
0: uh, SST? Was it ST? Yes, S. Yeah, they,
1: well, they, yeah, they, they, they were basically Sonic Youth early label, weren't they? Um, yes, and with Lid- uh, so Lydia we Lunch were, was. I yeah, don't know she did Lunch. a
0: collaboration, didn't she? Was it Death Valley '69 on it? And...
1: Yes, and she also did another one with Thurston um, Moore, the Shikona Youth.
0: Oh God! Was, yes,
1: I've got a twelve-inch of that, which is a Madonna cover on one side, and I think Lydia Lunch is singing in it as well. And God, then, I I then, loved
0: "In Into the Groove." B. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean,
0: um, oh, I think that was on Blast First Records. That was well.
1: Blast First, but I think ZCT were um, were before then. What they were signed to them before, but yeah, all of that stuff was kind of you know you could only get it in indie stores
0: i mean what about the, what about the butthole surfers or Husker Do? were those bands in your r- radar
1: some of my friends were into that kind of more american punk you know um i wasn't i always felt i always felt that american punk sounded like a bunch of whingy rich kids and um <laughs> it was kind of like you know fuck you mom kind of um, it, it didn't see. It didn't sound authentic to me, and I kind of steered clear of it. I remember um, what's that um, film that showcases a lot of that stuff? Um death, Was
0: it the death of civilization or something?
1: No, it was an actual feature film by uh, Alex Cox, um, and oh, yeah. it had and it had um, uh, Martin Sheen's son in it. Um, is it Amelia Estefes or the other one? I can't remember which. But um, um, it's kind of a it's, it's a strange film. But it had a lot of American punk, and I had friends in that were really into husk, Huskadoo, Huskadoo as I said, that umlaut, and you know a lot of that you know black flag and um, and Tatina uh, suicidal tendencies and
0: and yes,
1: and I, I wasn't. It sounded all a bit too kind of snotty p- snotty it it sounded to it, it, i don't know They've, they didn't really appeal to me that much although later on i think you know things like i think i got into black flag just because through sonic youth name checking them a lot um yeah
0: i never so i that, could never i could never get over the henry Rollins persona <laughs>
1: yeah so tough. yeah i yeah it wasn't i i felt like that era of american punk was a kind of a bit plastic and a bit. I don't know. It didn't feel like real angst. No, just, it felt like kind of. Actually,
0: I think I think America was doing economically quite well um, compared to the UK. So I think they probably mm-hmm. they didn't have the poverty that we had. So, yes. so were your first time in the studios? Was that to do Sunburst on Dedicated? This is nineteen ninety.
1: Um. Well, we. No, the first time in the studio, really. Well, we, we we did a couple of sessions. We did one we paid for ourselves, and we did, which I just got a copy of a few weeks ago because um, I found out the studio is still going. And in fact, I, um, uh, uh, Christian from Slowdive still uses it, and I think Slowdive used it for their last album a bit because um, it's in Western Superman. So it meant that it's kind of halfway between where. Neil is in Cornwall and, and, and Rachel's in Somerset and then Guy's in Reading and stuff. Yes. But um we did some tracks there, which were that basically the first ever things we'd recorded. We were 19 then, I think. Um, and that was kind of it did actually one of the tracks was what ended up on the first album, but um we'd re-re-recorded it twice since then. Um and Die, Die, Die was recorded then, but we recorded that again. But then we did another session, which when we were looking to get a deal, Silvertone Records were interested in us at the time, um, who had Stone Roses. Yes. Uh, and um, they'd booked a session down in in uh, Sawmill Studios in Foy, which is an amazing um, studios in an old mill. Um off the estuary which you can only get to by boat um and it's in this kind of natural amphitheater um beautiful sort of mill cottage and then and then all these little huts in the woods where you, the band sleeps and
0: my god it's like it's like rock was it rockfield in um
1: yeah it was a kind it's the kind of the cornish what rockfield really it's have done some pretty good classic records there but um anyway stone roses have booked it to record fool's gold Um, but then blew it out because they were thinking they wanted to go to Reading Festival. So Silvertone offered us the studio time. So we went down and did some recordings there, which again, and which we then mixed up in London with Paul Schroeder, who was the house engineer with Silvertone, but who also mixed the Stone Roses stuff. Um, um, But none of that got released. (laughs) Um, And um, so the first recordings that ended up on records um, were done in rugby and they weren't done in any particular, like we're doing this for a particular record. We were just started recording tracks we had. Yes. Um, So um, uh, all of those first three, the first two EPs falling, the the free fall EP um, was all done in rugby. Although I think we remixed falling down, down in London with another engineer. Um, And then Sunburst again was all recorded in rugby. And we again remixed, I think, uh, something more um, down in London again. Um, So yeah, that was our first experience. This is which would have been through 19... 1990 1990 yeah maybe yeah no, actually or 80 end of 89 uh, beginning in 1990
0: because john um, you get your john Peel session in october 1990 don't you which you do that's is... right
1: and we did that whilst we were recording up in um up in rugby because i remember driving down from rugby to my parents house to, to john Peel to call my parents house to do the interview live on on the radio <laughs>
0: Excellent. Excellent. I bet um I once heard him do one with Leslie from Silverfish. Actually, he didn't do a lot of interviews, did he, on air? So um you no. were obviously this was a new thing. I always remember him sort of having a bit of a chat with her. And um yes. There you yeah, go. it was
1: very surreal. I mean, after all my teen years lying in my bedroom listening to John Peel and writing down tracks on little bits of paper.
0: <laughs> um, it
1: was quite odd having him on the phone.
0: Yes. And um, yes, hoping your mum doesn't put the kettle on. Did you um your experience because you had Del Griffin, didn't you, producing that one? Can you remember did, much yes. about it?
1: Well, we knew that he was a bit of a legend, but he was a bit of a bit of a um bit of a ghost legend in that state. He basically had an engineer that was doing everything, and he wandered in and out and sort of said, "Oh yeah, turn that up," and then walked off again. Um, <laughs> so he um. I'd say he was an executive producer more than anything because he was, he, I just, he, I mean, obviously it was his, you know, his day-to-day job. Yes. He probably he, knew exactly what was going on and only needed to get involved if something was wrong, you know. Um, but he was, yeah, he wasn't exactly um, present as such. No.
0: And most <laughs> my, most people thought he was quite a grumpy old
1: yeah, he, he he was notorious for being grumpy. Uh, he seemed pretty grumpy, didn't really engage with us.
0: No, he probably really hated them. I guess with a lot of people, they have that musical moment in their life, if they have one, you know. And he was part of the 70s, and he probably hated the 80s and the indie scene and, you know, bands who could barely play their instruments. He yeah. probably thought it was just the... His
1: nickname was Dale Boffin Griffin, wasn't it? Boffin and inverted commas.
0: Right. Yeah. But how come you, because you recorded five tracks on this session, didn't you?
1: Yeah. I it's hard to remember because it never gets played anymore. I think Gideon Coe will occasionally play play one of them. Um and we did a Mark Goodyear session as well, which never gets played. In fact i I still can't we figure out like six music don't play Mark Goodyear sessions, um, even though they read, broadcast all everyone else's, you know.
0: God, I didn't even remember Mark Goodyear.
1: He took over Janice Long's slot, And um, it's such a it was it's one of the things that annoys me the most about my, that whole process was our well. manager, one of our managers, after doing that appeal session, apparently we were asked to do another one. Um the band never never told this, but um, and our manager said, no, we're holding out for a Mark Goodyear session. Um and refused appeal session basically which is just abhorrent in every way um and um I mean obviously they they were thinking oh it's an earlier time slot so it'd be better for the you know exposure but it was so disrespectful to turn down John Peel
0: yes I do I do and I
1: only found out about it years later um when I got uh, there was something about um they had john peel review the bands on the on after um reading festival we played and he and he he was reviewing mesmerize which came out in the, in the october of that year after the festival and um basically used that review to say oh yeah saw them at reading apparently they're, it's some um, mark, mark goodier or nothing they don't want to anything, and he was clearly pissed off with us <laughs> and he said even his son who was a fan of ours, does isn't a fan anymore which is actually Tom um, Ravenscroft now who, yes um, but we never got to redress it and it and it bugged me to the day and then when John Peel died I was so regretful that I never got in touch with him to tell him that it was it was not us yes um, it was a, such an annoying and You know, it's something I can't ever really forgive that manager for doing. Yeah, At least not even telling us what they were planning to do. Um, So um, that's those. And I think Mark Goodyear, he had his own production company. So I've got a feeling that that might be why all his sessions might not actually be owned by the BBC or something weird, and that's why they never get released. um, Yeah, so we, we did i think we might have done five in that first one um
0: yes i think you, yes I've, I've we did
1: four in this in the in the, the good session
0: because you did falling down something more inside of me treasure something oh no no some something more has been written down twice so you did oh okay yeah. So yes. Yes, did... because I I can because I can remember John Peel would sometimes say because I religiously used to record it on my trusty TDK D ninety cassette and sometimes he would say oh yes so and so has bought an album out, but they don't send me records anymore now they've made it but when when they're they when they're in decline they'll be knocking on my door and I always remember him sort of sometimes you know I've heard him I heard him say that a few times like. The enthusiasm of the first single and first album like they'd all you know the band would go and see him and then it was like "Oh, we don't need you now, john so um yeah yes.
1: I, I mean it's understandable because i know he got really you know like uh, mark Boland basically did that to him in a yeah. big style um and i think that was very hurtful to him at the time and i suppose it's like once bitten twice shy but um i, I can understand it and the, the thing is is for us just like he was our, he was the absolute zenith
0: he was he was our man i know i've I've been lost ever since without john so um yeah
1: so it's just so i just can't believe that you know he thought that we turned him down because it's just it's just you know the idea is horrendous
0: yes it is I know I know we have to um, yes. Yeah, so, so, so as as we tr- trucked into the John Major years of the 90s, you know, you brought your first album out, didn't you? And at this stage, had you signed to dedicated for a two-record deal? Or, or we signed,
1: um, we had signed by then, we signed, I think, just before Pearl, just sorry, uh, we did sign before any of the records were released, so that would have been in um, mid in the summer of 1990, I think we signed. And Falling Down EP came out, or some, uh, Free Fall EP came out in October of 90,
0: I think. Mm-hmm.
1: And then we had um, Free Fall in January or February and then the album, or no, was it Pearl first? Then Pearl, then the album, um, would have been in sort of spring of 91.
0: Finally. And did you do a, quite an extensive UK tour at that stage? Did you do Yeah, hip-hop? we
1: did. We did a we did a tour that was our, probably our first major headline tour that that year through through ninety the summer of 91, which included the town and country club show. Uh,
0: and were you doing all those ones like the Norwich Art Center and the I don't know, the Duchess in Leeds and yeah. I do Harlow Square? Yeah, did you did you do really all that the, circuit and the Princess maybe Charlotte?
1: Sheffield lead mill, Princess Charlotte. Um, uh, King Tut's Wah Wah Hut in Glasgow, um, Southampton Joiners, you know, the the, all those kind of sized venues. Um, although I think so, yeah, that would have been. uh, I'm trying. I do. I get. I do get mixed up a little bit about when these tours might have been. Because,
0: and did you have
1: after the album? We did a bigger tour. Which where we took out we took out five thirty and um and spitfire and bell tower, thousand yard Stare were on some of the shows and Yes. that was a more university gig, so that was bigger bigger places, sort of thousand thousand capacity places. Yes. We were doing the unis then um after the album. So but that might have been early. Might have been towards the end of that, might have been after Mesmerize actually. Yes,
0: so when rugby. you did with the first album, did you have different producers on different tracks? By the way, you didn't <coughs> have just one producer, did you?
1: Well, we we'd recorded most of the tracks ourselves at and in, in rugby, um, and then came down. They only had a 16 track, half, half inch, I mean, half inch 16 track machine, um, and their mixing desk was pretty. Limited and the effects and such. Some of the tracks on the first two EPs and and Pearl, we actually just mixed them ourselves in rugby. But um, we started bringing them to London. So uh, we mixed two or three of what on the album with John Fryer at Blackwing. Um, I think that would have been Guilt and uh treasure we re-recorded the drums with him there as well actually in this big they had this big stone room where the walls were covered in like clad in stone cladding so it was just a really good drum sound um and mixed that with him and if you want me was done in i think might have been no that was definitely done in rugby and might have actually been mixed there too we'd also done we used the studio in Reading for a bit as well, and the sound—the guy who owned that studio—became our sound man, um, live sound guy, um, for those first few tours. Um, and then some of the Pete, like uh, Pearl, we recorded from scratch with Ralph Jezard, right? Um, so we pro—we met up in um, um, with him and did all the pre-programming. Um, and then went to studio and did Pearl with him. And um trying to think what else. I know that Auto Sleeper was recorded in the Reading studio. I okay. know I mixed that with Robin Guthrie, um, which is when we, we also simultaneously took something more to remix with Robin Guthrie, but he suggested we record that again from scratch. Um, so we did that with him alongside mixing um, Walter Sleeper. We did a complete new version of something more for the album. Um, and, um, yeah, so yeah. it was a mix of, it was more rather than, it was, um, we got different people in to basically polish up a bunch of tracks we already had.
0: Did you um, have to, did you layer the music at that stage in the studio? Or were you playing it quite live or was it just kind of,
1: um, I think we were probably playing bass and drums live, um, with the, you know playing it all together, but then overdubbing the guitars. I think in rugby we did do some some um, some of them where we actually played all together, but generally we'd be laying down the rhythm track and then um, because our guitar amps were sort of so loud, it would and the studios weren't really big enough. We often would do them separately we'd play along with the guys you know and, and sing this rack but yeah we all the guitars and vocals probably um to the back to the drums and bass um
0: was that yeah. quite a tricky process to try and sort of feel satisfied with the the final mix
1: it's it's odd really yeah i think that the the you can we weren't particularly experienced producers and engineers then but we wanted to be involved in it we didn't want to just sit there and let someone else you know make those decisions so we were quite hands-on and being having rugby which was a very small and quite economic studio and the guy that worked there owned it and he wasn't very pushy so he was happy for you to just get on the desk and and you know crack on with it if you wanted and show you where um you know how to the effects in and stuff i can't say that we ended up with particularly great results i mean we're me andy and Asher are all music technicians now I mean, we, we we know that inside and out but we were kind of we were kind of blagging it at the time but had a, had an idea of what we wanted i mean one thing we didn't want and it's something we encountered all the time in live gigs was people not getting the idea that we wanted the vocals buried and we didn't want just vocals and drums and the guitars sitting somewhere in the back which is what most lives most of the in-house sound guys want you know yes thought was a mix you know big drums with a big gated reverb on them and um and the vocals and then you know turn your amps down it's too loud um (laughs) (laughs) we we were it was the opposite way for us, you know. So, um, so we needed to mix the tracks that way, um, and but we realised we also needed help with with it um, later on. So that's why, with you know, a lot of a lot of treasure and um, pearl itself, and the, the A sides of those EPs were kind of we we went to a mix engineer or someone who could like kind of add something um extra to it
0: yes yes interesting so what was your reading festival like because you played in 91
1: wasn't it yeah it was was great (laughs) i mean we had we'd, we'd we'd played reading maybe three or four times and then moved to london and we had no great desire to go back there we did it, it was one of those. It was one of those places where you just wanted to get the hell out and never sit and never turn back. You know, um, um, and um, so going Reading Festival was like a return home gig, but yes. instead of forty five people, it was forty five thousand people. <laughs> so,
0: but how did you make that jump? Because I know a lot of bands I've seen from, like, you know. The, um... The art center of all the art little clubs of 200, 300 people, university of like 1,200, and then suddenly they're Wembley Arena, 10,000, you know, or bigger. And sometimes you just think, oh, they've had the, they've had that hit or that had that brilliant album ish. Um, but then, you know, they're a bit lost on stage. How did you sort of cope from suddenly going from those stages to like, okay, this is quite interesting?
1: Well, it was the first outdoor show we'd ever done. And, um you know it, it's you're basically standing in a field with wind blowing in your face and the for a sound like ours which is very immersive it's about it's about creating a kind of big uh, a sort of it, it kind of needs to be enclosed you know yes. um so I don't think it translates particularly well to a festival states um PA you know, bands that sound best through a a a festival PA are bass, drums, guitar, vocals. You know, like really simple. Um, when there's layers and nuances that need to come through, it it's, they get a bit lost. Um, in that kind of muddy murkiness, um, and so, I mean, it, for, for, we were obviously pretty pretty nervous and um but still it was exciting um we just we were on a bill with some of our like um dinosaur junior sonic youth for later and Niggy pop and it was pretty special to be you know and i think you know we were on a good place in the bill because at the time it was probably where we were peaking as far as you know profile yes and we followed Nirvana, which was, at the time didn't, I mean, we were backstage when they were getting ready when they were playing pretty much, so, um, but they ended their set pretty, quite early because Kurt um, jumped into the drum kit and injured his arm or something like that. And so we were kind of pulled, pulled to play, go on stage a bit sooner than we'd expected.
0: Planned. Right. jeezy um, queasy. Yes, but,
1: um, and also some technician had panned it, plugged Dandy's guitar leads in backwards, so for the first song there was no sound coming out of his guitar, which is also something that you know kind of it sort of knocks your mojo. <laughs> <laughs> but as as far as the day is concerned, it was I it was I've got nothing but good memories of it. It was great.
0: Yes, absolutely. So what was it like for the band then sort of going into the studio for your blood, um, blood music, the second album?
1: Well, after, after the end of that year and Mesmerise was released, um, we spent the next year, we, we went into a residential place called Courtyard Studios, um, in Oxfordshire. Um, it was a residential place so we could stay there for a while and, um, Slowdive had introduced us to it actually I think they'd used it first so um we um we were demoing songs we were writing stuff and um I had a couple of sessions there I think one in spring and then one a bit later in the year and um I think after Pearl the label were basically wanting another Pearl um, which kind of was a fluke of a record. It just came out of Andy, you know, and he—he he wasn't. It wasn't an intended sort of commercial venture for him. Yeah. and, it, and it, it it just sort of you know it just came out of him. So he um. We were writing a lot of stuff. We were experimenting. We were doing smoking a lot, doing a lot of kind of the root of psychedelia and um and uh, um. And the label were not particularly interested in what we were sending them, um, so we carried on, and that kind of got a bit more extended. It's later in the year when it was like, well, when are you going to do an album or not? And um, and they were kind of like, well, we need we need to hear some singles, really. So um, Andy at the time was living down in Cornwall, and he was getting into the sort of um, the party house scene, like the sort of three free free parties in a field round at PA kind of.
0: Had he gone to Castle Morton?
1: He, his girlfriend was studying in Exeter, so he went he moved down with her and then there was a big scene kicking off down there with like sort of a- Apex twin and Tom Middleton and and um and um was it tribal gathering and all that kind of stuff.
0: Um, yes so and... was was ecstasy quite a part of the part of the band sound at this stage
1: well um it's, it was beginning to I mean we weren't really doing much we were mainly smokers at that point but um we were starting to do them um when we were going out but Andy was sort of going out most weekends and doing a few every Friday night and um I was living in London still so I was doing it when I was going to gigs and stuff but I wasn't, I was never particularly into the four on the floor kind of nch, 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 kind of stuff. It wasn't really my bag. Um, um, I was into the sort of orb and sort of, the sort of, um, the psychedelic, uh, ambient side of it. It's more conducive with me.
0: Yes.
1: Um, and, um, but, um, so yeah, it, uh, I, I don't think Andy felt. He didn't, didn't didn't like to be pressured to come up with another pearl, and he was in having a good time down there. So I sort of had to write end up writing a couple of tracks that would allow us to make Blood Music, which was that we are the beautiful and and um, she's a vision. Which right. They kind of they went oh yeah we can see this now. So a lot of the quite a few of the tracks that they weren't really listing were interested in ended up being on Blood Music. But we did actually, with them, we did actually do that up mainly with Pascal Gabriel. Got and we went into a studio with tracks that we'd recorded at Courtyard and basically, you know, rehearsed with him and he restructured tracks and um, suggested changes. And then we recorded a majority of Blood Music with him out in a place in Kent, a residential place there. But he was very odd. I mean, he, you know, he was one half of S Express um, along with Mark Moore. And he was basically came from kind of house dance music. But he'd just done the Inspiral Carpets, um, the big one with the, that had a sort of hit on. Yes. but he was a weird, really weird way of working. He, he basically wanted everything to be exactly in time because he was, came from a programming everything, back, sort background. So he didn't like it sounding like loose. So with the drums, he had this big bank of samplers and then he basically got Ashley to play the tracks over and over. And then he sampled every beat, every drum channel because we didn't, back then there wasn't digital multi-tracks. It was all analog tape. So he he had sampled every mic of a take and loaded them all into the sampler. And then he would be firing them back in, in the right sequence. So it would be exactly the same with as what Ashley played. But every bar or four bars of it was bars that he picked as being the most in time. So it was like, it was like live, live, but programmed. And it kind of t- sucked all the life out of a lot of it. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and it meant, you know, he could re, he could mix it afterwards because he still had all of the separate mics. Um, but it also took hours because back then it was just these hardware samplers. So we'd do a take and then he'd say, okay, come back in like two hours and we'll have patched it all together. And it, this, um it was a very old way of working, and I think it's when Ashley left the band actually was during that recording time. Um and um so he recorded he he wrote he probably played half the drums on that album, and then some of them were programmed anyway, and then we had a guy come in to do some of the latest songs we recorded, which were with different people. So we we went back to Ralph Jezard to look at some of the tracks that we'd started with Pascal. Yes. Um the mixes didn't come out so well with Pascal. He he wasn't it, that wasn't really his bag. Um and so um I think three of the tracks we did with him we mixed with Ralph. But we also did we are the from scratch with Ralph and she's a vision with Ralph's from scratch.
0: Oh god that um, sounds like a really difficult experience.
1: Yeah, and then two, and then there was a couple more, more, more rocky, live, raw stuff that we wanted to do live that we did with Paul Rabiger, who was uh, worked up at Livington, Livingston Studios. And we did,
0: um, uh, I think, what did we do there? We did um, Greater Power
1: with him, and I think on the on the way to fly as well is another one. We mixed them up at Conk Studios, the um the Kink Studios in Marswell Hill. Right. Um, I think we did, but I think we recorded them with with Pascal and mixed them um up in uh up in Conch, which is an amazing place. But, yeah, so it was a bit of a mishmash and we were, you know, it was a bit of a um, you know. Me and Andy were coming from slightly different angles at the time. So it was um, didn't gel quite as well, although in re- retrospect, I think it gelled better than we thought it did.
0: Yes, I guess the, the, the mojo, your, your sort of creative flowed fluidity had slightly gone and by then.
1: Well, I think the first album was a culmination of everything we'd ever done, right? It was kind of a it was a culmination of all of our intentions from our teens, from the start of the band throughout. Um it was it was where we was we had set our sights a long time before. And um and then after that point it was like, well, now we we've achieved kind of all the stuff we set out to do. Well, where do we go here? yeah um, i ideally, if I hadn't have had the pressure of the label on us, and also the fact that Pearl and Falling Down had already been written, and they were kind of catchy poppy songs, which I wasn't particularly interested in. I think if we hadn't had that label pressure, I would have continued just making noise guitar noise music,
0: yes, this is true, and did you tour that particular album, blood um? We did, yeah.
1: yeah. We we toured it. We did a UK tour, um, and we did a big American tour because actually that album was really liked by Arista, who we were who we were out going out through in in the states, which is another kind of it was a subsidiary of BMG, right? Um, and um, and uh, we were on RCA for the first album, and RCA really just didn't know what the hell we were, we were they were getting. They got sent this album, and uh, and they were like. A, Proper major label. So in the States, they were like, what is this shit? You know, because <laughs> they bring <laughs> out Kenny G, you know, and and uh so they um they didn't know what to do with Whirlpool. But when they when we moved to Arista, they got it, got well, got blood music, and particularly We Are the Beautiful were were really in love with it. So they were really gonna push it hard in the States. So we toured, we did a tour with Wonder Stuff, actually, the States um end to end
0: well i mean how many dates was that
1: a lot it was probably about 25 30 something like that
0: were you broken by the end of it
1: well i suppose i mean we were young and we had a lot of um stamina (laughs) (laughs) Um, but we were really we were hammering it hard and um uh i think you know um, I think we survived all right actually you bounced back a lot when you i mean we were 22 three years old
0: yes um and what was your experience in europe like did you do much in europe
1: oddly enough no again another side effect of the fact that we were effectively on a major label um dedicated was a was a subsidiary of a bmg is funded by a major so When we signed to them, we were a bit concerned about that and asked if they could distribute our records on an independent in the UK because we'd just disappear into the mainstream chart. Yes. Never seen. So they agreed to have it distributed by Rough Trade and we were in the top of the indie charts, you know, which was great because it meant something then, you know. Yeah. Um, But BMG around the rest of Europe was... Basically, a big major label you know that pumped out easy listening chart music, so they really didn't know what they were getting given, you know they didn't have the people in their offices that were into that kind of music, you know yeah, so I don't think there was a great deal of um of uh promotion in Europe um from any any of I mean, it's odd because creation bands, friends of ours like Ride and Slowdive, who are on creation, much bigger profiles in Europe because of that. Um, with the label they were on, because they it was getting to the right people in those countries that actually got it, you know? Yes. Um, whereas for us it was going to these music execs who 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 just didn't understand it, you know. So um so we didn't really play much in Europe. We did uh, We did a couple of Paris shows. We did um, Amsterdam and Rotterdam. Um, I think Bell, Brussels, we did a show there. And that was it. it I, 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 in the whole of Chapter House, that was it, like four or five shows.
0: Blimey. Did America get you? Did they enjoy you? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean the tours in America were great. I mean, they were really good. Um we it was a real eye opener because the fans there are just so much more um, enthusiastic. So you go to a gig and they're going wild, you know. Whereas in the UK I was like people just standing staring at you. <laughs> Even <laughs> if they're fans, they are too too um too uh, shy to 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 uh, move around. Um but you knew that they liked you in the States. And, um, and uh, you know, you asked right at the beginning about what was hard about music, music at that time. And the hard thing was, was there just wasn't any outlet for alternative music. Um, only person who played you on the radio was John Field, possibly Janice Long. Yeah. You, there was no TV shows. The Tube had ended by then. Um, the Chart Show maybe might play a snippet of one of your videos if you're in the indie chart but that was it you know there was, there was no exposure and so you were absolutely dependent on the music press for any kind of outlet yes that's why they were so powerful at the time and um could, you know make or break you basically because they 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 were the only information source that people got um and in the states they would read the english press and think it was kind of nuts like what oh, how are these guys one minute they love these bands and the next minute they hate them. Like whereas in the States they had college radio. So they would hear about you by actually hearing your record first, not by some journalist telling them whether they you were cool or not,
0: you know? Yes.
1: So so that's so people really um were there because they'd heard us and liked it, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I guess. And also, by then, we would got these sort of monthly magazines as well, like Select, and was Vox out by then as well?
1: I think so. I think there was, it was, um, I'm trying to think, Sounds was still going then.
0: I guess was Melody Maker NME... I can't remember which yeah. one. No, Sounds went first, then Melody Maker yeah. and then NME. But yeah, then we Sounds
1: and uh, Melody Maker and NME continued for a long time after that. Sounds did disappear at some point in there. Yes,
0: because um, the Britpop um, period Select, came Select,
1: then... Select was, I think, the kind of, was the um, indie magazine, bible yes. magazine. But it, all of this glossy paged ones were not really, they were quite, you'd have to have made it pretty big to get into them
0: yes q magazine was by then had become a bit of a you know that was kind of um very mainstream wasn't it so then sort of 95 do you is is the band sort of at this point the quote jim morrison coming to the end well,
1: well we actually we actually split up in jan january of 95 um and we just decided to call it a day basically i think it not january maybe maybe a little later march or something we'd been demoing for the whole of 94 and 95 and after that, Blood Music album, which um, had cost a lot of money, um, and, and then let her know all of the um, videos that were done for it, like, well, they spent silly money on them. Um, and we basically had to stop Blood Music um, because we got a, we got a, a lawsuit about um, some, it was a guy one of the rec- one of the tracks on Blood Music was an instrumental that Ashley and Simon had written, and um, we were recording it down in um, Youth Studio in Brixton Butterfly Studios. Um, and um, the guy doing it with us um, this DAT of a guy, an American poet, a friend of Youth's that had come down and recorded his poems onto the DAT in the studio at some point. And he started throwing these into the mix, right, through loads of echo and stuff. Um, and uh, we were like, you sure this guy's going to be okay with us using this? And he was like, yeah, he's a friend of youth, you know. And so halfway through that American tour with Wonder Stuff, we got a legal letter faxed through saying, you know, I'm, I'm suing you. Um, basically sort of a cease and desist. So effectively, what happened, um, they wanted us to withdraw the records from the shops, which didn't happen. But what they basically did was just pull the plug on it. Right. They just, they just said, forget that album. They've um, stopped promoting it. Um, and uh, we don't want to just, we're not going to repress it without that on or whatever. They just said, forget it, write a new album so um we were yeah, has that
0: the, is that track sort of left off this collection
1: no well all we had to do was edit four bars out of it
0: which is the it track
1: it's ridiculous it's Delhi. oh um it was only in four bars of the track but um which is what i i'd edited it for the latest um the first cherry red reissue i said we can't have that on there so um I'll edit out the poet guy <laughs> and um, and uh, and that that's what we've used that that master that we initially reissued with Cherry Red a few years ago is the master for this,
0: this yeah.
1: now as well
0: that must have been devastating having that when you said what was, it, what was the legal term you used? something deceased
1: De- uh, cease and desist it's basically like um you stop doing it because uh, or else i will sue and if i think in the end what happened was that he did got he he was an american guy but he somehow got illegal aid in the uk um and he was having a fallout with youth so we kind of got stuck in the middle of it. Like, um, he, it was something to do with him being friends with Alex Patterson from the Orb, and Alex was having a problem with youth about the ownership of Big Life Records, which has been a label that was basically created by youth and him to put the Orb out. Yes. And then, Alex Patterson basically said, Well, it's our label, really. And youth said, Well, no, it's not, it's mine. And they so they were falling out. And I think this guy got stuck to, into the middle of this whole thing. And it ended up being kind of used as a way of getting back at youth, even though youth really hadn't had anything to do with to do with the, the track. So we were kind of in the middle. It was very frustrating. It was um um you know ultimately what it meant was that they we had to just start writing. Demoing again, but yes. with the premise that rip pop was raising its head through that period, and basically indie bands were now making very catchy pop music, chart chart friendly, radio friendly songs. Yes. Which was just not us. Yes. You um,
0: must have shed and seven and sleeper, must have been your sort of nemesis, really. I,
1: I just thought, you know, it's what, okay, there's guitar music on the radio now, but it might as well be Kylie. That's what I felt. Um, and so I, um, so we were basically left like with this debt, and they, and, it, and it was a debt where they they needed us to write a hit single, or else they weren't going to put anything out because of you know they needed to make this money back. So we wrote for a year basically, and then by the end of that year, we realized they weren't going to drop us, and we weren't going to get the record released, and that meant. We wouldn't get any more money until the next option album option had just taken up. So we were just kind of living in limbo really, um, and 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 being asked to write music that we didn't really feel you know was us. Um, so we basically decided to just go and let's just break up, start and end all of this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was your last time in the studio together?
1: Well, it would have been doing those demos. We we um we had a, it was a rehearsal studio that Andy was hiring a room in, and he had a room next to Rob from God Machine who and, and who put a little studio in there too. Yeah, and, I, and I had run a multi cord cable across the car park to one of the rehearsal studios so you could record live drums over. So set up set up in the rehearsal the studio and record back over. And I had an eight-track, um reel to reel And we had samplers. We basically did most of the demos that way, um yeah. recording with the eight-track. Um we also did some stuff at Dave Stewart's studio, the church. We did some of those demos there, um, up in Crouch End. Um, so that was probably the the last proper studio we recorded in possibly um but and,
0: and have we all these all home
1: studios at the time too so i mean uh, uh, so all that the, the sixth cd on this box set is basically all the uh, majority of the songs we wrote back then we did uh, we did leave out a fair few which we felt weren't up to par
0: no but this um, is the so disc six from ninety. 19- to ninety five is your demos that you were trying to record your next single
1: uh, or yeah get them to take up the next album yeah
0: yes so you know when you mentioned you know you still had debt when you just said when you said the band was over do you do you just say that you can have the music how does that kind of work do you have to pay the well, debt off or
1: yeah the debt remains there and um is only is only they can't ask for it back from you they can only recoup it from sales right um so that debt it was it was like 450 grand something in that kind of region um that remained until now almost because there has been very few sales but um as it turns out you know we've we've had our albums reissued a fair amount over the last few years and also sony through music on vinyl have reissued them all on vinyl in the last year um and then this box set has brought out everything that he ever released plus all the bits that were missing in between and in a chronological order which is it tells a story whereas rather than grabbing little snippets from each official record this tells a story of everything in its in it in the the order it was recorded in
0: excellent my god that, that 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 is a nice completion so does that mean now the slate is clean, and um, this this kind of collection is yours.
1: Well, what it means now is no. Th- th- this is still licensed to Sherry Red, um, but um, Sony, in their wisdom, but with also with a lot of pressure from uh, Tom from Gomez, who has this has this campaign called Broken Record. Um, he's been pressurizing the labels to firstly sort out the awful streaming royalties that bands get but also um, historic debt, where Glo and Gomez still have a debt, but um, can tour and fulfill big, big, you know, big venues, but still have a debt. Because streaming doesn't recoup a, a deal that was written for physical product. No. So basically, you can be getting lots of streams, but that money's not going into paying off your debt, and you're never going to see it. So basically, what Sony came out with the pro, uh, the Artist Forward Program, which means from and this replied to any bands before signed before two thousand. So the people they seemed uh, they they deemed to have a legacy unrecouped debt. You qualified for that, and they would bypass the debt from January the first twenty twenty one, and any money that comes in from that point we will pass straight directly on as if your debt didn't exist.
0: Oh, blimey. That's, that's quite good for the band.
1: Yeah, so that means that, um, you know, it's never going to be big bucks, but it means we are actually going to see some money from this, this box set and also from those reissues of the vinyl last year. Um, and, um, you know, it's better than a poke in the eye with a stick.
0: True. No, this is great. I didn't, I hadn't heard of that before. So um, that's, that is quite exciting. And obviously, you said it was five years in the sort of like negotiating, which in a way seems like a long time. And yet I could imagine it being quite torturous at times, sort of pulling it all together.
1: It it, it was never an issue. It was, we did it, you know, it's not like we bust our balls doing it. So it took that long because we were, we weren't exactly, you know, on the money constants. We, we, We've slacked off here and there, but we basically, a lot of it was waiting around for other people to get stuff together so we could actually go forward. Um, and it wasn't really till the beginning of last year when everything was in place. We knew everything. We had all of the DATs archived um, from Sony. We'd searched through all the lists, found all of the right DATs that had the tracks we were after on, um, and found a whole bunch of tracks we'd completely forgotten writing. Um, and between Andy and myself we basically had all the unreleased stuff and remastered it we've got both got very good uh, music software that we're good which you could do some amazing things with now um even with just a a stereo mix um so it allowed us to be able to really make those demos sound as best as they could
0: yes Um, that's amazing
1: um so and then and also address some of the other tracks that, you know, the, there was a few of those tracks from Courtyard that were released uh, on Roundabout by BMG when they did that Roundabout album without our involvement. Um, and so um, we even remixed them as well, so that those aren't actually the same versions as on Roundabout, they sound way better. Um, so yeah, it's something that we're proud of. I mean, it's turned out really well. Ashley's older brother, who's an amazing graphic designer, did all the artwork, and he was a big fan of the band and had all of our sleeves and lots of um memorabilia and such um, already. So um, uh, he did an amazing job of making the artwork just look great. And um, it's definitely been, a, you know, a, 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 the first thing, first one we've actually had full sort of real creative control over. Uh, we chose, Andy and I chose the, the running order, all the tracks that we wanted to include. It's basically everything. The only thing we couldn't get on there was cover version of Lady Godiva's Operation that we did for um, a, a compilation album. Um, uh, and Sony were uncomfortable because they couldn't find who actually owned the recording. Um, so we couldn't put that on. And there was also a remix of Mesmerised um, done by a Mad Professor for a feature film. Right. Um, which, again, we don't know how that remix got commissioned or done. It was a Greg Araki film, I think. He uses quite a lot of serum, sort of Shugo's music in his stuff, um, in his films. But um, we couldn't track down that that mix either so that is the other thing that didn't make it on that we um, would have liked to include
0: well it's close i have to say the booklet which is nearly 40 50 pages is absolutely stunning isn't it it's really for the fan this is going to blow people's mind isn't it
1: yeah, I mean, we I dug out a bunch of stuff I had in folders and boxes um, and scanned it in. I got found out lots of old negatives that I'd taken at the time because, like I said, Simon and I were into photography. So we were taking quite a lot of those early shots ourselves and developing the films ourselves and printing them. Yes. So I had a bunch of negatives, which I scanned in and sent over.
0: But with the with the interest in kind of um, you know, this period of music, it's getting more and more recently and um and you, you know, you having your sort of American tour and Japanese tour. I mean, do you have some idea of how many kind of units you'll you'll shift on this? I mean, is it the sort of thing that's I know the Glitter Band. I did the member of the Glitter Band, and, and I thought, that's strange they're releasing a, a compilation of the Glitter Band without Gary." Because, you know, I think he said, "Oh, we might sell about 300, which I thought, "Wow, that's."
1: <laughs> well, I believe Cherry Red have printed up four thousand of this, right? Um, I'm hoping that we'll sell that out, and they'll press some more. Uh, I would have
0: thought so. Yeah,
1: uh, I mean, it's um, there's been a good reaction to it on social media um and um word spreading so i mean you know it's it's 42 quid which is quite a lot of money i think but it's also really good value for six albums it's about 6 hours of music you know yes so um if you compare it to buying well one of us one of our vinyl albums a single album's going for about the same price you know
0: um, yes
1: so I think it's very good value on that front, but it's still quite a chunk of money to spend if you own most of the stuff already, you know. <laughs> um, but we, you know, we didn't want that. Was something we didn't want was just like a, a reissue where there's like two tracks no one's got, and so they have to buy it all again just to get another two tracks. We wanted it to be a really yes worthwhile purchase. So um, we weren't. We we basically, you know. And it, I wanted to t- retell the whole story as well, in in a way that it, it makes sense. So you hear the evolution of the band, you hear the bit, the 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 things that led up to what might have seemed to you like a huge leap or change in the band. You can see the story that happened between those two points. Um, yeah. Makes sense of it, you know.
0: Um, um, I, um, I was going to say. I mean. It's interesting. You kind of reformed in two thousand and ten, and there is a little bit at the end, isn't there? Just saying, you know, from Andy saying he'd like to record with the with the group again, and um, is it finally Chapter House's time? Is there any kind of has there been a bit of an interest in doing any more recording or doing any more shows?
1: Well, we haven't talked about recording together as such. Um, Ashley was very, and he actually brought up the idea of us playing some shows with this box set, and it was something that we. We weren't adversely. We weren't averse to the idea. It was. It was something we would con- contemplate. Um, our lives are all quite um, structured in a way that it would be quite tricky. Yes. but um, um, it wouldn't be impossible. Um, but from my from my perspective, I felt that it would only be worth doing if it was really done right. Like with a with a manager and an agent, and um, and not in some half-assed kind of Keith Robinson way. So, I think without those two things in place and someone with the energy and drive to want to make it happen, then I I'm not sure if us any of us will uh, have that drive. So, yes, I mean I did put quite a lot of work into the re the the when we reformed in 2010. Um. By necessity, that someone needed to do it, um, um, and it, it it was even though I had the energy and I was more than happy to to get involved. Then it, I was doing it because I really wanted it to happen for us as as people, um, as as friends, to play in a room together and have that that connection and fun again of touring together. It wasn't about rem- uh, promoting the the um, the uh the legacy of chapter house as such it was really purely about us having some fun yes and but, um was it that, because... that it appreciated that it kind of scratched that itch in many ways <laughs> so, <laughs> so i don't know how um i don't know how much any um whether we've got as much energy as 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 into, into doing it now i know simon is he's he works very um he works in um, visual effects for TV and film and um um I think you would find it hard to take any more than a couple of weekends off you know and and that's just not worth all the no. effort to do a couple of shows you know it'd have to be worth our while maybe doing a whole summer of festivals and um you know around Europe and wherever um but that's quite a commitment um so i'm I'm it's unlikely that it will happen. As far as recording, I mean, it's tricky. We've been, me and Ian Ash have been working together for like the last 23 years, not writing together, but working in parallel, um, writing bespoke music for, for TV and film and, and advertising and such. And um, we've collaborated on tracks in a technical way because we write music for someone else's brief, you know, so it's not music we make off our, our own own. Malish, Um <laughs> yeah. and um, um, so it, it, it's 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 quite strange um, whether we would go there I, if it. I've got quite a young daughter now, and and these kids are kind of I mean, leaving home now. Ashley's got a young family too, um, so it it that has an impact on how much you can, you know, we all live in very different parts of the country as well. It's as Andy's right down the end of Cornwall. Ashley's in Somerset. I'm in London. Simon's now in Broadstairs. Um so it 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 would be a logistical problem. (laughs) I mean I suppose we could do it remotely. There's nothing to stop us doing that. But right now we're all very Andy Ashley and I all went freelance at the beginning of last year. So we're actually putting it up of energy and you know, trying to to um um work um get work um so that would be a frivolous pastime um that we'd need to sort of have 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 a um a, a bit i mean it's the sort of thing we've always said that we'd have to set apart set a couple of months aside and just go off and do it
0: Yes it is kind of strange i think it would be um yeah i mean I've, I've, a yeah, few people i think getting to that level where you're pleased with what you can deliver takes a lot of energy which you you know you as a musician know it just isn't going to happen on the first couple of days is it and um, no
1: and also i think the biggest question is is i don't know whether anything we came out with now would be chapter house no i don't know what relation it would have to chat chapter house and uh, people's expectations of what a chapter house would be um i'm not sure if we would make music like that um now it would probably have some elements of it um but it you know i, I find it odd that someone who wrote this stuff and they were like you know the teenagers basically or early 20s and in their mid 50s they're churning out music that sounds like it's written by an 18 year old still it, it, i'm not saying um it's i just think it's you know it, the evolution would be greater for us i think than that.
0: yes i think it would be and also there, there's a few horror stories of bands reforming and it going terribly wrong mm-hmm. t- terribly wrong lush the lush story is not good is it so um...
1: yeah no I, I i i um met up with um with with uh, mickey and moose actually her husband who's we also took out on tour with us on our when we toured the uk um we shared the same manager as lush and moose we all had the same manager um in fact ray conroy who was mick conroy's older brother he spoke with them um, Ray, uh, mick a few weeks back didn't you yes um his older brother ray managed us and moose and lush in, in together with a guy called howard goth um but yeah the they i think that might have i don't know that might be more of a logistical issue that, that something messed up with visas or something like that um it, i think it might have gone a bit more smoothly if that side of it hadn't gone wrong
0: yes <laughs> it was all yes it was the visa wasn't it i remember I do. I do have a. Um, I do have an interview with. Well, funny enough, that was quite a few years ago. I did an interview with Mickey and then Phil around the same time. And um, yes, I don't think I could ever release the the Phil interview. Will never be released.
1: No, I. I think he. I think he basically. You know, for him, he put in a lot of effort, and he, and the payoff never came.
0: No, they missed they missed they they that. Yeah, the V it began with the visa, didn't it? And then yeah. it went downhill. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But um yes.
0: But it uh, sounds like with Chapter House that you actually are all kind of still friends.
1: Yeah, we've all I mean we've been mates since we were teenagers. Simon and Ashley Simon Simon and Andy grew up in the same street like um as from babies. Um and then I met them both at secondary school. Um and then we met Ashley in and those benches are in where all the turnos hang out in Reading. Yes. Um, but he was only 15 at the time with a massive goth haircut. Um mm. and she's like three years younger than us. Um so I've they've been my best mates since then, you know. I mean Andy and Ash have I've worked with for the last 23 years. Um and um it's only been in the last few years where they've moved out of to out of london that we've not seen as much of each other but you know consider them my best friends um still so um yeah, there was never any uh, there was never any um darkness between us <laughs> <laughs> i think there was a lot of strain at the end of nine, you know at the beginning of 95 there was a point where we would there was so much strain on us as a band that it strained our personal relationships, but only in a weariness. Yes. We needed a bit of a break for a while just because it had been, you know, it had just been such a slog and such a kind of disenchantment going on with the whole thing that we needed a bit of time. Um, but it was only a few months and then, you know, we were working together in different ways again.
0: Yeah. Um, Did you go straight into sort of sound production and engineering from more or my...
1: less. I moved I'd, I'd, um, that same rehearsal studios I was talking about that Andy had a place in, I I moved into a a set of flats opposite there. And it was a bunch of musicians living together. It was me. It was me, John from Sleeper, guitarist of Sleeper and Vince from Daisy Chainsaw, drummer of Daisy Chainsaw. And then the guy who ran the rehearsal studios all got a place together. Um, and it had a garage inside the house at the bottom so i had cables running from my bedroom through the house down to the garage which meant we could record drums um and i had my 8 track and they started recording Camden bands um and then they started getting me to go to proper studios in around Camden and and, and i started basically going to production and um recording all the sort of up and coming Camden bands at the time
0: Blimey, you uh, were there at the zeitgeist moment of Britpal.
1: Yeah, I mean, we that road we lived on, it was a muse, it was a, one of those 80s kind of semi luxury muses, with, where um, there's security gates and a cobbled street, you know. Um, but we had, um, menswear were living at 27 because they'd through the studio they'd heard about it. we moved in there first i think and then they heard we were living here and then they uh, found us got what took on a house there a couple of doors down there was another band called freeloader there was paul tomkin two doors down who ran um blow up
0: oh yes the club
1: um and then a bit later on, Knicky moved in down at number twelve or something like that, and, and um and then we noticed this guy two doors down from us that when in the back garden, who was a real larger-than-life character, he was a really funny guy, and it stuck in my mind. But it was only like two, three years later when I moved out that I realised that it was um, Sasha bowen and Cohen. Oh, right. Yes. Before Ali Ali G. uh, But when Ali G came out, it was like, oh, that was that guy that lived a couple of doors down that was always dicking around.
0: fantastic god you could make a little musical of that story we called
1: it St Paul's Musos rather than St Paul's Muse (laughs) Um, it was kind of the party our house was the party house in Camden so basically when all the pubs and clubs shut there'd be people knocking on the door expecting it to carry on in our place
0: nice there you go and then from that you then got a serious kind of commitment to the did you get into that sound production world
1: well I I I I did that for a few years, but there's only so far you can get with it. You're basically only successful as the um, the last band you worked on, and that's it's someone else's luck that you're dependent on, really. So it's um it's quite a hard game to get into. I mean, if you get do a band and they do really well, then everyone wants to use you, but that kind of tends to not have anything to do with how good you made them sound. Yes. Um. So. It was actually, Andy um, started doing dance music with a, a new partner called um, Simon Cattell And they signed to a company called the Delphi Music, which was a label of doing sort of drum and bass and, and some deep house, or progressive house, which is what he was doing. But they also had a bespoke music composition side to the company. Um, so they asked, started asking Andy if he wanted to help out on any pitches for jobs they were doing tv and adverts advert stuff so he started doing that and then he kind of ended up being asked to stay on in house with them because he won the walking with dinosaurs gig right um he won the sound design for the walking with dinosaurs which is a big project um he spent almost a year on it basically making dinosaur sounds and all the foley i mean everything you see on screen other than the voiceover is created by Andy and Simon, um, all the all the steps, the cracking of wood, all the, you know, everything. Um and um so he got into that and then then basically started working for them full time. And then we, me and Ashley joined over the night, next year or so. And then we've been doing it ever since as the in-house composers at that company t- until the last January.
0: Blimey. And then you thought that's it, freelancing, I'm going for it.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, it was a combination of things, really. But um, yeah, we've uh, we've all gone freelance, and um, and it's kind of because we're all we all moved back. We had studios in Covent Garden and Soho, basically, where where you have to be for the ad industry. Um, and um, COVID, we had to move everything home, and basically now I've moved everything properly home. Um, done working from home yes Um, i'm in my studio right now in fact surrounded by all my gear and all my art guitars are on the wall over there
0: (laughs) nice my god yes it's funny i've done you know quite a lot of people have now got especially in places like chicago and la have all got their like kind of big room with their this is my studio you think oh that's nice you know that's their kind of um i suppose day job while they try and make music in the night in the evenings and see if that makes them what makes people happy but it might not pay the rent
1: yeah exactly yeah i mean <laughs> um i i think you know i haven't got a massive desire a massive kind of need to to distribute my ego to the world uh, i think that at a time in my life in chapter was i had something i had something i needed to prove and uh, i think i had sort of a lot of drive and, and adrenaline and, and sort of a kind of sense of injustice that i needed to rectify Yes. Um but now I'm I you know I don't really I think I'd need a bit more encouragement probably for the um collaboration to really drive me to sort of write anything that's me Mm -hmm. such.
0: Yes. Well, I guess we all go through phases in life, don't we? Mm-hmm. You never know. And there might be one in five or ten years' time, which exactly suddenly all fits into place.
1: Yes, indeed. indeed.
0: Indeed. Well, look, Steve, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. So if You're you want, welcome. I can I can always send you the link and then you can put it on your Facebook page and social media platform sites and other okay yeah excitement. but awesome. that would that would be great but yeah thank you ever so much it's been great you know listening to some of the the demos on your discs four five and six and and now you've explained it i'll go back and have another listen actually yeah i mean i
1: think that there's 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 a group of demos that were between blood music and uh, between whirlpool and blood music which are on the second disc i think courtyard demos um and then and then there's then there's the sort of the um final demos that were never came out. Um well, those didn't come out either, but um, so that yeah, they're interesting things to hear, yes, um, I, I think so. anyway, i, I you know, I'm I was a not more forgiving of myself in my elderly old age. <laughs> I listened through to them, you know
0: <laughs> yes, this is true. Yeah. well, look, thank you ever so much. It has been amazing. and have a lovely evening. and um yes. yes. It's a bit cooler now, so hurrah. Yeah,
1: it is. I think my daughter's about to get home too, so yeah, the timing.
0: Okay, thanks ever so much. <laughs> have a care. lovely evening. Take care. You Bye too. Bye-bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. This has been David Eastall. That was uh, in conversation with Stephen Patman. That's the most interesting or important thing that I should mention there. Um, talking about Chapter House, as you gathered, they have got this C6 CD box set that's out on Cherry Red Records May twenty. 20- 23. You can find out more information. I think they've got a Facebook page and various other things. Anyway, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just dc 86 show. Keep it positive and groovy. And also all these interviews, and there's been a few, have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.